Russia continues to bomb Ukrainian ports, hitting Romanian territory in the process. In the meantime, Turkey's President Erdogan ends up unable to convince Putin to revive the grain deal. You're listening to the Explain Ukraine podcast. Explain Ukraine is a podcast by Ukraine World, an English-language website about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm a Ukrainian philosopher, journalist, and chief editor of Ukraine World. I invite you to a roundup of the key events and trends in and around Ukraine over the past week, delivered by my colleagues Maxim Panchenko and Anastasia Herasimchuk, journalists and analysts at Ukraine World. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the largest Ukrainian media NGOs. Let me remind you that you can support us at patreon.com slash ukraineworld. You can also support our volunteer trips to the front lines at paypal, ukraine.resisting.gmail.com. You will find these links in the description of this episode. Hello and welcome. This is the new episode of Explaining Ukraine podcast that is focused on the weekly digests of events that happen in and around Ukraine. My name is Maxim Panchenko and I'm joined by my colleague Anastasia Harasimchuk, who both are journalists and analysts at Ukraine World and Internews Ukraine. And as I said, we're going to discuss the latest developments about Ukraine. So Nastya, can you please a little bit tell us uh, the and make an announcements of what we're going to cover today? Sure. As usually, we are going to cover three main topics regarding the Ukrainian counteroffensive, uh, the, the successful uh, military operations conducted by Ukrainian armed forces against Russia, and about Russian attacks on Ukrainian cities. We will also cover the international aspect, and we will talk about the uh, visit of the U.S. Secretary of State to Ukraine, and we will talk about the results and the meaning of uh, the meeting uh, of Turkey's President Erdogan uh, with Russia's President Vladimir Putin. And we will also talk, uh, we will also explain uh, some issues about a new uh, defense minister of Ukraine. Thank you, Nastya. And uh, yes, indeed, we, as usually, will start with uh, talking about the counteroffensive. Uh, on the ground, I would not say that there are any too big news because the hotspots are the very same. Those are the villages around Bakhmut to the north and to the south. And uh, that's the first patch of land that's the, the major hotspot. Uh, I would say, according to the recent uh, reports that, that have been coming from those territories in the recent days, uh, Ukraine has uh, managed to push uh, Russians somewhat further in this uh, villages to the south from Bakhmut. Uh, for instance, there is the village of uh, Klishivka, and uh, Ukrainians are claimed to have regained uh, around half of it. And this is strategic also because that way uh, Ukrainian forces can encircle Russians in Bakhmut and thus uh, force them out of the, of the town. So we'll see what happens there. And another hotspot on the map, uh, as it was the case, has been the case for weeks, 
already is the one in the Zaporizhia region uh, where Ukrainian forces are trying to break through the uh, defensive lines of Russians. Uh, reportedly, Ukrainians have already uh, broken through the first uh, line and uh, some sometimes maybe at some places maybe are already breaking through the second line and uh, are trying to uh, expand the stronghold between the villages of uh, Verbove and Novoprokopivka, which are to the south of uh, Robotene, which has hit the, the news headlines in the recent weeks uh, around the world as one of the major successes of uh, Ukraine in the battlefield. The important thing here is that uh, the, uh, is the assessment of uh, foreign officials and foreign intelligence communities, because, for instance, no earlier than yesterday, I think, or the day before yesterday, uh, their uh, representatives of the U.S. intelligence intelligence community said that uh, Ukrainians have accelerated in their counteroffensive after crossing the first line, after breaching through the first line of uh, defense of Russians, and so the the developments of the ground are uh, getting hotter and getting accelerated, and that the chances of uh, Ukraine to uh, have major wins uh, in this counteroffensive, meaning retaking big patches of territory to the south uh, until the coast of the Azov Sea. Uh, those chances now constitute 40 to 50 percent, uh, which is not bad uh, given that when put into perspective, these chances have been uh, much smaller in the previous weeks, according to those representatives of US intelligence. Once again, the previous numbers have not been. Uh, spoken out loud, but the hint is that Ukraine is now accelerated and Ukraine is now now has much bigger chance to uh, succeed. Apart from that, uh, there have been developments uh, on the sea uh, because Ukraine has uh, managed to sink several of uh, Russian vessels, smaller vessels, caters, but still the cutters, but still this is uh, this this demonstrates how even having basically what can be summarized as a mosquito fleet, uh, Ukraine can uh, with uh, withhold Russians off its coast in the unoccupied territories. And uh, that, of course, is inspiring. And also Ukrainian hits on uh, Russian military facilities in the Russian territory uh, have uh, continued. For instance, Ukraine has carried out a repetitive and uh, also successful hit on the uh, on the plant of microelectronics in uh, Bransk, which has been the second, from what I gather, uh, similar event in the recent weeks. Uh, and uh, also there have been some others uh, in uh, Western Russia. So this once again proves uh, the uh, the theory that we voiced in our previous episodes that Ukraine has uh, managed to build up its capacities uh, when it comes to drones so much that it can afford stable drone warfare and not just uh, single attacks, single hits. And that, of course, is also very promising. Uh, Nastya, are there any uh, any things that I have missed? Because I know that you can analyze some other things on the front lines. Um, you've covered uh, the main part of the uh, developments in this line, but the only tiny thing I would add to what you've already said 
uh, it concerned the counteroffensive and uh, the main hotspot, the main line, uh, which attracts attention not only of Ukrainian public but foreign uh, audience as well. It's the southern direction where the main breakthroughs are going on and when where the main breakthrough is uh, awaited. Uh, so uh, you, you've mentioned about the expectations and about the relatively high chances of uh, Ukrainian advancements in this direction. At the same time, we should be realistic. And the titanic work uh, Ukrainian military, um, Ukrainian soldiers are doing uh, cannot ensure really fast moving forward. Uh, and the main obstacle here are, uh, again, the Russian uh, defensive lines. So there were talks about the first defensive line, uh, which was extremely difficult to overcome. Uh, and um, we were talking even in our podcast that uh, mine territory, the volume, the scale of uh, mine territories was the main obstacle. And um, Ukrainian military, uh, who managed to break through the first defense uh, line, uh, like gave hope and sh- and proved that it, it's possible to move further. And they were there was even opinion that um, overcoming breaking through the first defense line makes the task to uh, adv- advance in this direction easier. But the reality is a bit different. And if we talk about the second defense line made by Russians, it's not it's not easier to overcome, unfortunately. Uh, so uh, when we talk about this line, we should keep in mind that uh, Russians, uh, having had uh, enough time to fortify Uh, to strengthen their defense lines, they created the whole system of labyrinths there and underground uh, entrenchments. So they they created the whole underground cities. So if we talk uh, in terms of mine territories, yes, uh, there are less mine territories there. So uh, they are still numerous and it's still difficult to uh, break through them, to overcome them and demine them. But if we compare the first defense line with the second one uh, regarding the mines, it's slightly better. But the rest uh, of the fortifications, they are really difficult to overcome. And if we talk even about artillery and heavy shells uh, and um, those HIMARS uh, systems we so heavily rely on, they are not so much helpful uh, in overcoming this kind of fortification. So here we need more more he- like heavier weapons. We need uh, jets. And exactly having this kind of weaponry would accelerate the process. Uh, so uh, w- when we are talking about these speculations, expectations, we shouldn't forget that uh, the real uh, development of events, the real counteroffensive is going on exactly on the ground. And only the soldiers and only the Ukrainian command know the real situation. No matter what we want, what pace we want to see and what our Western allies expect. And it's really uh, worth mentioning that this second and the third line of defense, they are not much easier to overcome than the first one. Yes, indeed. And uh, one more uh, notorious development that has been going on is that Russia continues bombarding Ukrainian cities and Ukrainian facilities. 
this has already become something that Ukrainians, well, got used to in a way. Uh, but of course, this is a very cynical got used to expression because each time or most of the times there are casualties and there are uh, and they always are civilians. Uh, so this, of course, is a major thing. This last week, uh, there have been several, uh, once again, notorious events in this sense. For instance, Russia has kept uh, has kept shelling Ukrainian port infrastructure, and um, one of the hits uh, was uh, specifically on the ports along the Danube, the ones that that Ukraine tries to um, use as an as an alternative for exports of grains because of the Black Sea being basically blocked. And uh, so Ukraine is trying to use the ports of Vizmail and Reni in order to uh, export uh, grains, but Russia keeps targeting them too in order to make that impossible. However, another aspect here this week has been that one of the drones, or one of the Shahed drones, uh, fell in on the territory of Romania, because if you look at the map, uh, the Danube, it flows between the territory of Ukraine and Romania in that place, in that region, and uh, basically the border between the two countries uh, goes along the middle line of the river. So uh, I think that sooner or later, the, sooner or later, this was bound to happen because of the immediate proximity of Romanian territory uh, and Moldovan territory. Uh, to the uh, facilities that Russia is trying to uh, to target. Uh, but uh, what is frustrating here is that the response of uh, Romania has not been very uh, has, has not been very well solid, I would say. Uh, because for the first day or so, Romania even denied, or was just taciturn about what was going on, uh, and it did not admit that something had happened. And uh, later, there were diplomatic statements about basically about this being a one-off thing and uh, this not being intentional. Even yes, even though that yes, this happened on the territory of Ukraine, and this is frustrating because Russia feeds from that. Uh, from that um, fear that uh, Romania, in this case, clearly demonstrates. And uh, when it becomes a pattern uh, involving other people, uh, other countries and other instances, this uh, may basically be a prerequisite for Russian, uh, for, for Russian um, readiness to go further and to uh, blackmail the West further because it does sees that uh, no major reaction follows. However, I uh, got a little bit distracted on, on this topic and back on the issue of uh, of the shellings of peaceful Ukrainian cities, there have been some other strikes too. And uh, Nastya can tell us a little bit more about this. Yes, unfortunately, the last week wasn't exception and uh, Russia kept shelling. Uh, Ukrainian cities, uh, and again, as it, it has been previously, these attacks were mixed ones, so they used um, strike UAVs, and they also used different kinds of missiles. Uh, so if we talk about the most massive attacks um, regarding Shahed drones, regard, regarding the strike UAVs, indeed, as Maxim told, 
the port facilities were the main target and uh, the southern part of Odessa region was under constant attack. And uh, Maxim told about the consequences and about the aims of Russians there. And I would like to mention the scope of these attacks. So if we talk about the last week, five nights, five nights uh, just per one week, it happened like almost every night. And uh, here we talk not only about destructions, which is painful for Ukrainian economy and for uh, the global food security, which is extremely important. Uh, we also shouldn't uh, forget about the um, dimension, people's dimension here. And such long, exhausting attacks, they drain uh, people's mental health. So just imagine not sleeping uh, five nights in a row, uh, being full of fear because you would never know where the a drone or debris would fall and would your home um, damage be damaged or would you be wounded uh, under this attack. Uh, so this aspect is also extremely important here. And what is even more awful if it's possible to compare the scope of uh, ugliness and brutality of these attacks. There were several attacks uh, by uh, using ballistic missiles. And unfortunately, Ukrainian air defense is not that perfect. And um, in, in lots of regions, it's not just it's not possible to shoot, shoot down ballistic missiles. So this week, Russians fired ballistic missiles at Krivirich, Sumy, and uh, Zaporizhia, and Konstantinivka. And I will dwell on uh, several uh, episodes of these attacks in more details. So today, the blatant cruel attack on Krivirich took place, and uh, um, Iskander ballistic missiles was fired at the city. And um, unfortunately, one person died and 52 were wounded and uh, they had a uh, like different uh, state of being wounded. So some people are severely wounded and uh, doctors keep fighting for their lives. And uh, dozens of buildings were damaged or completely destroyed. And this attack happened in the morning. It's a working day today, so people were rushing to their workplaces. Uh, lots of them were outdoors. And this attack happened uh, directly at the moment, at the rush hour. Uh, and uh, at the same time, Suma and Zaporizhia suffered from ballistic missiles attack. Uh, luckily, mm, uh, there were no uh, dead people, no one was killed, but they were wounded people and of course there were damages to properties. And the most blatant, uh, the most monstrous attack took place in Konstantinivka on the 6th of September. So Russians uh, fired a missile at the central market. Like it's the main market of the city. And it's so difficult not to be emotional here. Like this attack happened in the morning again. So just imagine like common people, ordinary people, uh, some of them send their kids to schools and kindergartens. Uh, some of them uh, send their loved ones to work and decided to go to this city uh, central market to buy some food, 
to cook and to treat their kids and their loved ones when they come back home. So they just go to the market, they do their things. And at this moment, uh, a missile hits the place. It's just, it's not possible to describe it with, with words, such a horror it was. And unfortunately, 17 people were killed at this attack and 32 were wounded. So these are examples of pure terrorist face of the Russian Federation. Uh, so um, we see that these ugly tactics get changed and week by week it gets more and more awful. Uh, if previously we mostly had these night attacks that were draining for people, now people are constantly uh, in the state of fear because something awful can happen at night, but at the same time a ballistic missile can uh, destroy the whole your life at any time of the day. And the international community should pay attention to these crimes, and especially when we talk about the UN and when we talk about the international law. It's not uh, morally permissible to uh, let Russia avoid the punishment for blatant war crimes. I agree. And by the way, we're going to mention the UN later in in this podcast, discussing one of the recent events around Ukraine in connection with it. But for now, we're going to uh, refer to other international developments around Ukraine, which would be the several meetings, the several visits, uh, not necessarily to Ukraine, but maybe between other countries uh, that uh, had to do with, uh, with Ukraine, with the war in Ukraine. And uh, the primary among this would be the uh, visit of Antony Blinken, the U.S. Secretary of State, uh, that he has paid uh, in an unannounced manner, as he usually does during the last 18 months. Uh, and uh, he visited Kyiv for two days. Uh, interestingly enough, the program of his visit was largely unannounced. There has been a lot of speculation, but uh, there has been also a lot of um, uh, well, not a lot, but to the contrary, there has been at the same time the lack of uh, information, official information from the very people involved in the visit, which would be Antony Blinken himself, Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, and then uh, Ukraine's foreign minister. Uh, Western media uh, speculate that uh, the major topics of uh, his visit have been the counteroffensive, the ongoing counteroffensive, and uh, trying to assess during his visit, uh, what Ukraine needs further in order to continue the counteroffensive and to make it successful, as well as the Ukraine's preparation to the winter period, meaning specifically the preparation of the energy infrastructure for that period, because uh, it is largely anticipated that uh, Russia is going to try to repeat what it was doing last year, namely to leave Ukraine without electricity and without heat in, in winter and thus to subjugate Ukrainians morally. Uh, and uh, so if indeed this was on the, on the agenda of Blinken's visit, I think that means that uh, the US is trying to find ways to support Ukraine in that uh, sense too. What important, uh, what's important here is that um, this visit, even though there are too many speculations about the program, as it had not been announced officially, the very fact of the, of the visit uh, shows the consistency of the U.S.'s uh, commitment 
which is not only important per se, but also it's very important against the backdrop of the approaching U.S. Uh, electoral campaign. And there are so many voices appearing in the media sphere, from what I can judge, both domestically here in Ukraine and internationally, about how much, to what extent, Ukraine is going to uh, keep being supported by uh, by the U.S. against that backdrop, because uh, there are more Republican voices um, uh, against uh, the further uh, the first, further support of Ukraine, there may be speculations about uh, how much are the Democrats um, ready to do henceforth, uh, given that uh, they need to be understandably more cautious uh, in the run-up to the elections in order not to uh, tarnish their positions domestically, which of course puts uh, Ukraine in a tough spot. And uh, in this particular circumstance, circumstances, there is an additional value to this, uh, to this visit of um, uh, Antony Blinken. Uh, however, uh, this is not all uh, sunshines and sunshine and rainbows, uh, because there has also been another uh, visit that uh, has happened recently. I believe it was on the fourth of uh, oh, on the uh, on the fourth of uh, September. And it was the visit of uh, Turkey as president to uh, Russia. And NASA has more information to share about it and its outcomes. So please. Yes, Maxim, the visit took place uh, on the 4th of September indeed. And um, why are we going to talk about this visit about Russian Turkey uh, relations in the episode of podcast about Ukraine. So the the answer is very simple because these negotiations they had direct influence on the matters that are connected to Ukraine, and here we primarily talk about the grain deal. Uh, so uh, we all know that uh, Turkey's uh, attempts uh, on the international uh, international arena in the uh, image of uh, negotiators, peacebreakers, meditators, uh, these uh, attempts were very very active, and Erdogan doesn't want to lose this image as a um, deal breaker. Uh, that's why this visit and negotiations with Putin were extremely important to him. And uh, uh, if we remember how long and how difficult these uh, uh, arrangements uh, were going on, how many times the place and the time of the uh, meeting was changed, uh, we really understand that uh, Turkey's president was really um, interested in having these talks. Um, Talking about the results, we can say, broadly generalizing, that there were no results. So it was uh, not possible, let's say, and Erdogan didn't manage to convince Putin to restore the Green Deal. But there are things that are worth paying attention to. And uh, here, first of all, um, we can say that... Um, most probably Erdogan hasn't, has understood that Putin is not a person with whom it's easy to negotiate and um, talk senses into. 
And here it's also worth mentioning the nature of Russian-Turkish relations. So if we think that uh, Turkey is Ukraine's strategic partner and if we think that uh, having this... uh, ties with Russia betrays the interests of Ukraine, we are, mis- we are mistaken here because the nature of Russian-Turkish relations are more pragmatic and both sides are very suspicious of each other and they have these tactical interests. But at the same time, they are rivals, especially in the uh, White Black Sea region. So Turkey is not interested in Russian dominance in the Black Sea, for example. Uh, so, uh, again, coming back to the grain deal, uh, again, Putin told that it's necessary for Ukraine and for the international community to fulfill Russia's demands so that Russia uh, would uh, allow itself to get back to the grain deal. And we know that these conditions, these um, things Russia wants from international community are not acceptable by the Ukrainian side. First of all, Russia wants um, the lifting of certain sanctions, for example, uh, reconnecting uh, one of the major Russian banks, Russian agrarian bank to the SWIFT system, uh, or um, it also wants to relieve certain uh, sanctions in the agricultural sphere. And uh, what is important, and we should pay attention to this factor, Russia is offering an alternative to the Green Deal option. And uh, there were no signs that Turkey is ready to substitute this uh, this new initiative. Uh, and uh, refuse from the grain deal. Uh, but uh, still, it's worth mentioning uh, what, what Russia offers. So uh, Russia wants to get rid of Ukraine from the grain exports parts at all. And it wants to uh, take Ukraine's place uh, in terms of providing uh, grain to the um, global south, let's say. Let's use this term here. Uh, So the offer was to uh, have a separate deal with Qatar and Turkey. And in this case, Russia would become a sole, the only one exporter of grains to uh, to the uh, Middle East, Africa and African states. Um, And as I've mentioned, uh, Turkey doesn't look so uh, in favor of this initiative. Um, What else is important to uh, pay attention to here is some initiatives that uh, Russia wants to uh, launch in Turkey, for example, um, turning Turkey into a Russian gas hub uh, or building a new nuclear power power plant there. And um, this is a slippery slope, to be honest. And... um, in terms of strategical consequences, Turkey will not win out of these uh, initiatives and uh, it will get more dependent on Russian energy sources than ever before. Uh, so again, I, I, I think like it's a matter of uh, strategic um, planning of uh, Turkey. However, we know the dangers of such initiatives. And... Um, we also heard a very ambiguous uh, statement made by uh, Turkey's president. Uh, he, even though he told that um, 
it's not possible to break, uh, like to for sides for the sides for Russia and Ukraine to negotiate now, and it's not possible to bring peace at this moment. He expressed uh, his confidence in the future of the Grain Deal. So he, even though there were no positive results of the meeting, he expressed his uh, positive attitude uh, towards the continuation of the Grain Deal. What is important to notice here is that he hinted that Ukraine should soften its position. But again, these were words and um, Ukrainian uh, foreign ministry uh, stated that before the uh, Russian and Turkish president's meeting, Ukrainian side talked to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Turkey explaining uh, Ukraine's position and Ukraine's principle. Uh, position on this issue. So now what's, what we have to do is only to wait and observe uh, how this situation around the grain deal uh, will develop. And again, we shouldn't forget that here, exactly in these relations, in these bilateral relations, Russia is heavily dependent on Turkey because Turkey is uh, the gates for Russia to, the, uh, to other countries, to the world. Because uh, Russians use uh, Turkey as um, like a crossing point to reach to other countries. In terms of trade as well, uh, Turkey is a very important important partner uh, to Russia. So uh, Russia cannot behave too blatantly towards Turkey. So um, maybe there are some talks and uh, some pressure is put behind this scene. So we, we just need to look at the further developments in the nearest uh, month, and then we will understand what, what exactly is going on between the states. Well, the one thing I would like to add here, and that will transition us, help transition us to the next topic, uh, is that um, the Western half-hearted uh, and uh, unfortunately consistent, consistently half-hearted reactions to uh, Russians' violations of international law, of human rights, uh, of uh, genocidal acts, and, uh, uh, for instance, uh, things that have happened in Romania, the ones that we discussed uh, previously in this episode. Uh, this only inspires Putin to push forward his agenda, because had... Uh, the world responded more um, firmly to all those atrocities, to atrocities in Mariupol, to atrocities in Bucha, etc. And if the diplomatic position of the world would now be stiffer, uh, I do not think that uh, Putin would not would have that much leverage as he has now as to demonstrate to use a high-level meeting with the president of another state, of a NATO member state, with Erdogan, just to demonstrate that, no, this is going, the Green Deal is going to be happening on my terms or not at all. So this is the beast that the world, either consciously or unconsciously, which might even be worse, is continuing to uh, to feed and that, that way to make it grow. And that, of course, is very frustrating. But the thing why I said that this brings me to this brings us to uh, our next topic is that just today uh, there has been uh, an information that has resurfaced on uh, and thanks to Bild the German uh, the German uh, outlet 
according to which there has been a correspondence between uh, Antonio Guterres, the UN Secretary General, and the and Russian Foreign Ministry Minister Sergei Lavrov, according to which the UN and uh, Russia are trying to negotiate the lifting of some sanctions from Russia uh, in exchange for Russia's uh, return to the Green Deal. However, all the points of negotiations are very favorable for Russia, uh, at least as appears from the materials that are published by Bild, because from what I gather, this is an exclusive material that Bild has prepared. Uh, so uh, Guterres discusses with Russia the cancellation of the EU sanctions against the Russian Agrarian Bank and uh, in, in order to uh, enable the payments that uh, otherwise are blocked under the sanctions. And uh, then Guterres discusses the uh, return to... Um, well, to defreeze, defreezement, basically, of Russian of the assets of Russian companies uh, in the agro, agro sector, several companies in agro sector. And then uh, he discusses the provision of permits to Russian vessels that uh, carry certain uh, products, that carry agricultural products to the EU ports. And so basically... It comes. It boils down to the idea that Guterres is ready to negotiate with Russia the cancellation and lifting of so many sanctions, thus cancelling their idea. In and uh, so Russia is going to say, henceforth, so okay, we do not have those sanctions hanging over us anymore. So what is our our incentive to uh, make less war? It. To the contrary, is the incentive to make even a bigger war because we're going to, at the end of the day, be unpunished. The world sees us as too big to fail. So this is uh, what I'm driving at when I say that uh, the Western and the world's generally half-heartedness uh, with regard to with respect to Russia is becoming a pattern. It is becoming consistent, and uh, it is becoming very. Uh, very frequent too. Just our in our last episode, last Friday, we were talking about the statements ba- made by Pope Francis and how they have been hypocritical and criticized for that domestically here in Ukraine, internationally. Now have the uh, somebody would call him the primary diplomat in the world just because of the office that he occupies. And uh, that, of course, is uh, not only frustrating, but that is very dangerous. And what the world does not understand so far, I think, is that it's not only dangerous for Ukraine and for the war in, in Ukraine, but also for the world, for, the, for, for other actors in international relations, because uh, Russia is not trying to make friends with them. Russia is trying to subjugate them. And that, of course, is a major problem. And the last topic that we're going to refer to today is the topic uh, on the domestic agenda of Ukraine. Uh, this week, Ukraine has welcomed a new defense minister, Rustem Umerov, uh, and uh, that this happened uh, against the backdrop of uh, the previous defense minister, Oleksiy Reznikov, uh, being sacked against the backdrop, once again, of uh, corruption scandals uh, here in Ukraine. And uh, Nastya, will you please finish our conversation with a little bit of information for our listeners on this particular topic? Uh, 
let's focus on the personality of Rustam Umarov himself, uh, because the backdrop under which this uh, shift of position has happened uh, is not that uh, bright. There were uh, corruption scandals indeed, even though uh, Oleksiy Reznikov as defense minister was effective as he, at his position and he had a lot of achievements and he, he, ha- he, he was the defense minister of the most difficult time of Ukrainian independence. It's the period of the full-scale invasion. So, um, like, it's a, a double-sided coin. Like On the one hand, we have achievements, but on the other hand, on the other side of the medal, we have the scandals which are not permittable in the times of war. So, focusing on the personality of Rustem Umarov. Uh, he is a Crimean Tatar by origin. Uh, he is a former uh, member of Ukrainian parliament. And before being appointed to the position of the defense minister, he was the head of the state property fund. Uh, what is uh, what makes his uh, personality positive and what gives hope here that this person was not um, involved in any corruption scandals before? Uh, even being the head of such an important um, state institution as the State Property Fund. Uh, He also uh, has experience in, uh, let's say, spheres related to uh, the military sector. So he actively he took an active uh, role in um, numerous swaps of uh, prisoners of war. He also t- took part in the um, returning Ukrainian civilians back to Ukraine. Uh, he was also very active in evacuation activities and he was one of those people who was negotiating the grain deal. So he was one of the uh, Ukrainian creators of the grain deal. And if we um, describe his uh, professional side so many people so many sources tell that he's a good negotiator and that's very important thing uh during the times difficult times ukraine is uh, has been living through so we believe that uh, this minister will also manage to advocate the interests of ukraine and present uh, ukraine uh, effectively uh, in relations with our partners What I would like to draw attention to, and it uh, may sound a bit weird, but in the case with Rustem Umerov, his origin uh, is important here. Uh, What's what I mean? Uh, Being uh, appointing a Crimean, the Crimean Tatar, to be a defense minister, uh, it's also a symbol. It's also a like manifestation of the fact that Ukraine is not going to give up on Crimea. So it's not the primary uh, reason to appoint him as a defense minister. Of course, his professional achievements and uh, his competence was the most important factor. But at the same time, this factor, uh, especially according to the Western media, this factor also uh, plays an important role uh, here. Uh, in this regard. So uh, Rustem Umerov's family history uh, also is very, um, very telling. 
his family was sent out of Crimea. They were deported from Crimea and his family managed to come back only in 1970s or 1980s, if I'm not mistaken. So he he personally and his family suffered from this uh, imperialistic, cruel Russian policy. And uh, he was, in, and he has been advocating uh, the interests of Crimean Tatars and uh, Crimea uh, in general. Uh, so um, hopefully, we got not only a new effective minister, but also a person who will um, do a lot to uh, make the moment when the Crimean Peninsula is liberated and is back to Ukraine very soon. Yes, and uh, of course we'll have to see, uh, to, to judge uh, this minister by his deeds when they come into being. But uh, already now we can see that there are certain, uh, well, there Let's just say that he has a bright start just because of his sole profile uh, and his previous experience in Ukrainian political. So, of course, uh, this is a good place to start at. We're going to wrap up this uh, and uh, make a break until our next episode next week. Thank you very much for listening to us and uh, we'll see you next week. In the meantime... Let me remind you that uh, Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the largest media NGOs in Ukraine. And also let me remind you that you can support us at patreon.com slash ukraineworld and you can support our volunteer trips to the front lines at paypal, ukraine.resisting at gmail.com. Thank you once again for listening and we'll meet you in our next episode.